Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious, but humble, yes, corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And so here we are with Tom Dorian, your humble sidekick, in full communion with the Catholic Cafe. <laughs> Tom Dorian, there with his uh, sprinkled donut. Man, that's some good donut right there. Yeah, we got some good donuts here at the yes, Catholic Cafe. Only only thing better than that's the coffee. That's true. It's good coffee. That's true. So here we are, and you mm-hmm. know what? We're going to talk about the church today. I fancy I'm that. Shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> fancy that. But I, but I, the odds. Here's here's what's going to be interesting today. Uh-huh. I think it's neat. One of the things I need I think is neat about Catholicism is how Catholicism really does take to heart and really live out the whole concept of the incarnation. Yes. And what I mean by that is the idea that God is spirit. Mm-hmm. He's invisible. Right. Right. We, he doesn't have a physical body. Right. And we experience him, which is good. Mm-hmm. But he knows that we are physical. We're cr- the creative universe, created universe, right? Right. And so because he created us as we are, mm-hmm. how many times have we, you know, we're, we're very, you know, like visual people. Totally. Right? You know, we say things like, I'll see it. I'll, I'll believe it when well, I see yep, it. Yep. Right? I want to see it. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You know, he wanted to put his hands, put his fingers into Jesus' side. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we know that. We're we're like visual people. Mm-hmm. Show me the money. Right. Don't just tell me about the money. Show me the money. Right. Right. And so, the incarnation is really God saying, "Oh, okay, I'll show you the money." Right. You know, much more than money, I'll show you eternal glory. Here's here's my son. That's exactly right. And so here is God who takes on flesh. Right. You know, and so in the incarnation, now. That's so beautiful, That just that concept. And I know that all faiths, all Christian faiths, really understand the concept of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. That's God taking on flesh. But what I love is how the Catholics, how we, how we realize how important it is that that which is visible mm-hmm. is, can, is holy and leads us to the sacred, to the, to the invisible, to the, to the spirit, to right. God. Right. And so think about it like this. One of the most beautiful opportunities that a deacon has mm-hmm. is to be able to bless the Easter candle right right at the Easter vigil. The deacon carries that candle into the darkened church, mm-hmm. and that candle's the only thing lit, mm-hmm. symbolizing the light of Christ, right. the light of Christ going into the darkened world, mm-hmm. right, bringing light to the world, and how beautiful that is. And again, this idea of light... Mm-hmm. Is something that is visible. I mean, it's not yep. merely just a play on words. It's a it's a reality that that we see. Mm-hmm. We see the risen Lord. We see the mercy. We see the love of God played out in our humanity and our physicality. We see that as a visible reality. Right. And there are a lot of folks that might see everything that has to do with God as being invisible, mm-hmm. and especially His Church. Right. Right, we've heard heard this idea of of an invisible kingdom, mm-hmm. and and I do remember uh, having several conversations with some good Protestant friends of mine about the idea of an invisible kingdom. Right, and yet I started thinking, well, is that true? I mean, is that the way we should view the church as some sort of like uh, 
loosely organized, only sort of collective in thought, in general thought, in mm-hmm. generality, mm-hmm. but not a brick and mortar mortar thing, not a not a hierarchy or a formal organization or structure. Right. How many times have you heard people who say, I, I, "I'm very spiritual, but I'm not religious. Right. I don't like organized religion." Oh yeah, you hear that all the time. And so I wonder, is that something that is was revealed to us? Is right. that something that is found in Scripture? Is that something that the church has always taught? Yeah. And so I sort of set out to kind of understand whether or not the church was indeed supposed to be visible, whether or not the church was indeed supposed to be organized and hierarchical and structured in some way. Mm-hmm. And so what I started to do was, I guess, the first thing to do is to start to read Scripture. There you go. You know, we can always read Scripture. Scripture always. helps us out. Yeah. And so I go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A lot of images there. Yeah, but the idea of light. Right. And then also, you know. Goes right with what you were talking about. Well, your works, the things that you do, things that people experience and see, touch, feel, Mm -hmm. right? Your good works are what are going to lead folks to your father who's in heaven. Right. Right? To spirit. Mm -hmm. And so this, this is so key, though, though. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Right. Well, yeah, there it is. There's the church. Yep. There's the image of the church, yep. right? If you've got a light, the light of Christ, you don't hide it under a bushel. Mm-mm. You put it where all can see because that's what's going to be leading people yep. there. I love that, that beautiful image of the, the sanctuary lamp, Yeah. right? We'll leave a light on for you, Yeah. right? The <laughs> idea that we see that lamp and we realize that Christ is present in the Eucharist right. there in our tabernacle. Right, right. And it's a visual reminder. Yep. And so that's that's important for us to understand. So the question is that we have this sort of visible thing. We know uh, Catholic Church has always taught that there is a visible church. Yep. There, it's not an invisible church. Mm-hmm. That a bunch of folks kind of think generally the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now we do kind of generally think the thing, same thing, but we worship together. We worship in unity, in harmony. Right. We gather together as a people. Mm-hmm. We have we we build parishes. Mm-hmm. Right. That. We, we see it even going from our parishes to our diocese, mm-hmm. from the diocese uh, to the metropolitan, to from, the, from there to, the, to, the, uh, to the, the church universal. Right. Right? And we have a Holy Father in Rome, and that's, that's kind of getting us a little further ahead here. But we see in the Catholic Church always that structure. Mm-hmm. And so then I wondered, like, well, if, if Scripture wants us to see a visible church, mm-hmm. Is that the way the early church interpreted that? In other words, let's say little, just a church little bit fathers. after, right? A little bit after Jesus is, is, is ascended into heaven, mm-hmm. right? What did the church do? Because we do know that Jesus, you know, he kind of had a little briefing with all the apostles and right. said, "By the way, this is what I need you all to start doing." Right. Right. And so then he ascends into heaven, and then they go to work, right, building that church. Yeah, did they organize themselves, or they just kind of go scatter? Yeah, what happened? Now, as we read in the the Acts of the Apostles, we start to see that. But I was kind of looking before script, other than scripture, before, but after scripture. Mm-hmm. But at at in this in this early church, what actually happened? Mm-hmm. What historically started to happen? Mm-hmm. And I came upon upon several scripture, our, our holy, our 
church father. I can, I can get this straight in a second. <laughs> church father quotes that help us to see what was taking place in the church at that right. time. Yep. Here's This is an important one. This is St. Ignatius of Antioch. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this. He wrote a letter to the Smyrnaeans, mm-hmm. the, the folks of Smyrna. There you go. Right? And, and this is around 110 A.D. Mm-hmm. And this is what he has to say. Now, this is not scripture. This is not infallible teaching of the church. This is really just a reflection of what was going on mm-hmm. in the church at that time. Mm-hmm. And so here's what uh, St. Ignatius says. You must all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father and the presbytery as you would the apostles. Reverence the deacons as you would the command of God. I like that part, by the way. Reverence the deacons as you would. Oh, how can you not like that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let no one do anything of concern to the church without the bishop. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which is celebrated by the bishop or by one whom he appoints. Wherever the bishop appears, let the people be there. Just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. So, now, so this, he's mentioning bishop and presbytery and deacons and that's exactly right. And Eucharist and sounds he links like some structure. the bishop and Eucharist, Christ being present there, and then he says the last thing: there is the Catholic Church. Now, this is the first yeah. place where we have a writing. Which says uses Catholic as a descriptor, as a name. Right. This is the Catholic Church, not a church that is Catholic or universal. Right. But the universal church. Right. And so Saint Ignatius sees this, and really, at th- that means at this time they were calling it the Catholic Church. Right. That's not a name that was kind of like just came upon what we call as Catholics, and some people say Baptists, and some say Methodists, and some say Presbyterians, or whatever. This was the Catholic Church. That's why our Catholic Church we teach is 2,000 years old. Right. But you're right in pointing out that we see bishops, we see priests, right. we see deacons, yeah, we them. see Eucharists. Right. Right. And saying that anything of concern to the church, we've got to check with the bishop first. Right. And it wouldn't be a valid Eucharist mm. unless the bishop had, had done it himself or appointed people. Right. Which, again, we see a bishop over this sort of cluster of parishes, yeah. people that he appoints yep. to certain uh, parishes within his his domain, within his diocese. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, Tom, but I look at that and go, that sounds a little structured. <laughs> right? And, and the fact that the bishop is like in charge of all that sounds a little hierarchical. It does. So either we would have to say that St. Ignatius of Antioch was just kind of a rebel who went nuts and went crazy and decided, I got an idea. Here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Or we have to start to think that maybe there was intended to be a little structure, a little hierarchy, and that the early church actually looked at that and said, this is what Jesus meant. Yeah. When Jesus built the church on the the rock of St. Peter, Mm -hmm. right, and made Peter the first pope, when that happened, well, that started this sort of chain reaction with, okay, now we've got these apostles that will be as bishops, and that they'll lay hands on people in different towns, right. which would become a diocese. Yep. And then those bishops within those towns would then also lay hands on people, and they would help build a structure. Right. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize, that in actually in church history, that we have this... This, it's played out and laid out before us. Yeah. And so if to ignore that would be kind of uh, rewriting history, I guess. Yeah. Or yeah. ignoring what really did happen. Yeah. Because I can see folks, you know, now, if you don't have any history, 
really you just look at what churches do I have to choose from, and then you choose one that kind of it's like choosing ice cream or yeah. choosing a suit at the store. Which one do I like? I like my pinstripe guy. Let me just yeah. pick that one. Yeah. And we did a whole show on which church. You know, doesn't matter yeah. which church you pick. But the whole point is, if you eliminate history, then really there's no choice any better than the others. Yeah, it's just flavor or what feels right. That's exactly right. But if you start yeah. to look at history, you start to realize, well, wait a second. It kind of matters. There, it does matter because yeah. this is what happened in history. Yeah. Well, we have more to talk about this in terms of the hierarchical, structured, visible church. Right. We'll do that in a second when we come back. Before we do that, I want to remind folks at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And with that, we'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. In every generation, certain individuals stand out as brilliant teachers of the faith. 19th century England produced one such shining star, Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, one of the most brilliant Catholic writers and educators of modern time. On February 21st, 1803, John Henry Newman was born to banker John Newman of London. As one of six children, young John Newman was well-educated and known as a voracious reader of novels. By age 15, Newman had a conversion experience, straying from his Anglican faith and becoming an evangelical Calvinist with strong anti-Catholic leanings. Throughout his life, he would always acknowledge his gratitude for this conversion experience and saw it as pivotal to the salvation of his soul. But he grew over time to see that the evangelical Christianity, with its emphasis on salvation by faith alone, was, as he put it, a Trojan horse for undogmatic religious individualism that must inevitably lead to subjectivism. Newman came back to his childhood Anglican faith, seeing the great need for the hierarchical church as a body to protect and transmit the faith through the generations. While teaching at Oxford University, John Newman was an integral founder of the Oxford Movement, a group of high church Anglicans that sought to restore to the Church of England several aspects of Christian tradition and liturgy that had been lost. The Oxford Movement published a series of tracts that gradually became more and more Catholic in tone and theology. Ultimately, John Newman converted to Catholicism and continued to write several eloquent defenses of the Catholic faith. His writings and the Oxford Movement with which he was intimately involved were responsible for the conversion of hundreds of people to the Catholic faith. John Newman was ordained a Catholic priest in February 1846. In 1854, he was sent to Ireland to serve as rector for the newly established Catholic University of Ireland. While in Ireland, Father Newman published a series of lectures on the idea of a university, wherein he argued that the university should be dedicated to the search and transmission of all truth, including the fundamental truths revealed by Christ through his church. Blessed John Newman serves as patron for the Newman Centers of Catholic College Students established at universities across America. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. 
And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, and we're talking about the visible church. Yes. We're going to focus now. We, you know, there's a church, city, a city set on a hill, mm-hmm. a, a light that you don't put under a bushel basket. Right. Right. We're going to talk about that's the visible part of this, mm-hmm. that it's seen, mm-hmm. right, that it actually attracts people. People come to it because they see it. Mm-hmm. As as this uh, sort of uh, this instrument of grace, this opportunity to get closer to God, mm-hmm. and so that's why if you think about the way that churches were built in the old days, way back when they, they were typically built on the highest right highest point in the city. That's right, and then also they would have what you know pointing to the sky, this big giant steeple. Oh yeah, this this idea of just, just that the church was pointing to God, mm-hmm. and so people would climb up into the town to the top of. The city where they would see this church sitting on top of that hill mm-hmm. and go up there and they would realize that the steeple or the bell tower or whatever would would draw them up and it would lead them up to God. And so just in its its physical structure, mm-hmm. it was designed to be seen, mm-hmm. to be noticed. And you go through Europe and you go to these towns, these little hilly places, you watch the, that, oh, that yeah. old church that was built at the time that town was founded is sitting on top of that hill and you can see it. And it's it's such kind of a neat thing. That is neat. And so the early church always interpreted this idea of this uh, light not being stuck under a bushel and this, this city set on a hill Mm -hmm. uh, as an important thing. Right. But we're going to go further now into this, this idea of a hierarchy because St. Ignatius of Antioch helps us understand that they're, Hey, where the Bishop is, that's where you need to be as the Mm -hmm. people, because that's where you're going to find Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to find the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's a valid Eucharist because the Bishop said so. Right. Because he's got an authority. Mm -hmm. Right. But let's, let's see this. If where else in scripture do we get this idea of, of there being something important about who this bishop is. Right. Not just like, hey, uh, isn't your week to be Bishop Tom? You know, and we have this like sort of rotating thing, or does it really yeah. matter? What do you Exchange guys hats. put on the, yeah, one of you guys put on the pointy hat and you guys can do right. it. It's like, it's, there's something different going on here. Right. And if we look, here's a, here's a St. Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter. Uh, this is uh, chapter three, verses one through seven. The saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, He desires a noble task. Now, a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, no drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so we, we, we read that. St. Paul tells us this. He's very concerned about who this bishop is in the early church. Right. Now, remember, they didn't have uh, as much celibacy going on at that point. St. Paul was celibate. Right. But so we're, we have all these converts, all these people coming to the faith, all these people who are now Jews who are becoming Christians, even Gentiles who are becoming uh, Christians following the, following the Messiah, following Jesus, the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we realize this, though they're family men. Right. And so we see this idea of, yeah, you have to be a family man who knows what's going on in your family, got your kids under control and all that. And your mm-hmm. husband, one wife, didn't want to, you know, if you had six wives... St. Paul's saying, you're probably not good material for the bishop. Right. You know, right? You, that's not exactly the right. the ideal situation there. But the point is that early on it was important, and St. Paul was telling us just how important all this hierarchy and structure 
was. Right. And what I'd love is at the very beginning of this thing that I quoted here, right here in verse 1 of chapter 3, mm-hmm. and uh, the first uh, letter to Timothy, the saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office mm-hmm. of bishop. Big word. That word office says so much it does. about hierarchy and about structure. What right. it means is it's not just one guy who's doing his thing, and when he's done, it's over with. Yep. And the example I like to use is if you were... If you had an office, mm-hmm. you know, if you were, you know, a businessman, you had an office, and down there on the, on the at the end of the uh, hallway was the office of the accountant, mm-hmm. and there he is, and they're doing his daily chore all day long, and he works, and there's got a desk and a stapler and a phone and everything. It's all <laughs> looking good, right? <laughs> Turns out that he starts embezzling, and so he's got to go. <laughs> he does. Or let's say he dies. Well, well the guy's a good guy, right? Yeah. So the guy passes Goes away. Now, you don't board up the office. And say, no. you know what? We're done. We don't have no more accountant. You've got to replace them. It's an office, right? Right. Someone else gets to come in and use that desk and that stapler, right? Same thing here. This is what St. Paul is alluding to, that when the bishop dies, when the bishop moves on, when there's no more bishop, there needs to be a bishop in there. Right. It's, it's an office. It's something that is replaced. Right. And so now we start to see this concept of succession. Right. And we get that even at the, at the, the, the Acts of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was so neat when, you know, Matthias, lucky fella, oh, yeah. comes Lights. along. Right. Well, so let's read what happens in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, uh, verses um, 20 through 26 in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. And his office let another take. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all that all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. I like how Paul doesn't mention his name, Judas's name, until the very end. Yeah, he throws him in there at the end. Yeah. yeah. We know Judas is a bad guy, <laughs> right. Right? right? And so he went off to his own place. Right, but right? They, filled, they filled his office. They filled his office. Right. Here we have, a, we, well, a dozen tribes of Israel. Right. Right? And right. And Jesus comes out of there, right? Right, and now Jesus, who's building this this kingdom, this church on earth, twelve in apostles. Preparation. There's twelve apostles, yeah. And so, when eleven is not enough, yeah. So there have to be at least twelve, and so immediately, well, that's what the apostles do. We got to go find some, find somebody else, yeah. And I love how they quote uh, from the Old Testament: "Let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it." That's the habitation of Judas. Right. His house is now desolate. Yeah. He has violated all humanity mm. here by turning Jesus over to the to, to, to be to be crucified, right? right? But and then also and his office let another take. Right. And so they fill that office. Yeah. So we see this idea of apostolic succession. And what are we succeeding in? What are we passing on? What are we doing? With this office. Right. It's not merely that we're all going to just sit there and say, well, I've got the office. Now I'm sitting in the big chair. i got the pointy hat. Right. All right. What am I supposed to do? We get also St. Paul writing to Timothy mm-hmm. in the second letter. He writes a couple of things here I want to point out. One is chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who, 
from whom you learned it. Mm-hmm. So continue what you're doing and, and, and what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Right. So it's important where you get the information. Right. In other words, the information is passed on. And we see that uh, more clearly in that still that same second letter uh, to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Mm-hmm. Now, see, that's key. Mm-hmm. That right there is the idea that we're going to take this information and we're going to pass it on. Right. And so if you start to read, and there's so many other quotes that help us to understand in Scripture, be careful who you lay hands on. Right. St. Paul is so specific about what the bishop is supposed to be like. Right. That there, we don't just lay hands on anybody. Right. Right? So be careful who is going to be teaching. Right. And what are they going to be teaching? You know, that's where we understand this idea of apostolic succession, this idea that this is going to be passed on, protected. Right. Right? Protected from generation to generation to generation. And that's why 2,000 years later, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church is very still hierarchically structured. Mm-hmm. We care a lot about how, uh, who the Pope is, what, yep. what he reigns over. Yep. But then also who the bishops of each diocese, what their how their parishes are organized yep. to that bishop. Oh yeah, it's it, this, these are key things because we're only going by based on what what we learned right. from scripture and what the early church act, actually did. Yeah, and so I guess the important thing is if we were to decide suddenly that that this was truly an invisible church, doesn't doesn't jive with it that. doesn't jive with like yeah. what history taught us. Yeah. What these guys would say, it doesn't jive with scriptures. Yeah. You know, because if you ask the average Baptist or someone else, you might say, well, where is your bishop? Where's the guy that is, um, you know, husband to one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent. But gen- now, now, the people in those churches can be these people, can be, you know, husband to one wife and be a good, wholesome person. But where is your office of bishop? Excuse right. me, where's your bishop's office? Right. And maybe you don't have one. Yeah. And is that because you've decided you don't need one anymore or that the church never intended for there, be, there to be one? Yeah. And so I would look at that and say, hmm, I think the church always did decide that. Yeah. And, and always needed that. Historically, that's what really swung me back when I left the Catholic Church back to the Catholic Church. So I hope everyone realizes just how beautiful and how wonderful it is. What a grace to have a visible church. It is good stuff. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome. Let's pray. All right. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Holy Mother Church, the shining light on the hill, the visible sign of your grace here on earth. Help us to hear her call in this world and to heed her teachings, seeing her as the sacrament of salvation. We ask this through Christ our Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at The Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.